0: Welcome back to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna
1: Rothkoff, Managing Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. Welcome back, Prachi. Thank you. I miss you so much. I can't say the same because Greece was amazing.
0: You didn't miss me, though? (laughs) That's true. I did. You can miss me and be in Greece and enjoy it. Joanna, I really missed you. Thank you. This week, in a testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee, James Comey said that he could not speak publicly about the Donald Trump P tape.
2: Was the FBI able to confirm any criminal allegations contained in the Steele document?
3: Mr. Chairman, I don't think that's a question I can answer in an open setting because it goes into the details of the investigation.
0: Which I am taking to believe means that there
1: is probably a Donald Trump P tape. James Comey also said that the Trump campaign defamed him.
3: And although the law required no reason at all to fire an FBI director, the administration then chose to defame me and, more importantly, the FBI by saying that the organization was in disarray, that it was poorly led, that the workforce had lost confidence in its leader. Those were lies, plain and simple.
0: We're recording this on Thursday, obviously, Prachi. And then it comes out on Friday. prajay are you really excited? I feel like people are having parties for the Comey hearing. Do you have any plans? Are you going to do any drugs?
1: Well, I think I read about a bar that's serving free, like, drinks every time Donald Trump tweets during the hearing. I know. That's hearing. an
0: insane thing for that bar to do. That, that bar is that going is. to <laughs> shut down tomorrow. So goodbye to that bar. <laughs> This week, we're talking about a draconian abortion law in New York that forces women to bring non-viable pregnancies to term. And we are very honored to be speaking with Erica Christensen, who is the woman who is featured in an interview with a woman who recently had an abortion at 32 weeks, um, an interview that Gia Tolentino published on Jezebel one year ago.
2: You're made to feel like a criminal, I mean, that's that's it. You know, our law is literally in the penal code. And we're also talking to New York
1: State Senator Liz Krueger, who has been working on a reform bill, the Reproductive Health Act, uh, that was recently passed in the General Assembly and now sits at the floor of the Senate on what her bill does and why this reform has not yet passed in New York State.
3: And so the fact that we have not modernized our law since 1970 is outrageous.
1: But first,
0: our week in weenies. Our first weenie of the week is Monica Crowley. She was a Nixon person who was in back in January expected to be nominated to the Trump administration's National Security Council, but had to remove herself from consideration after it came out that she had plagiarized significant portions of her doctoral thesis and book, which I feel like is just a thing that...
1: <laughs> it's a prerequisite. There's it's you re- can't get the job unless you've somehow you've done something in like the
0: Trump administration. Illegal or or unethical. just like unethical. Yeah. Anyway, so later she got she became back in the news because she had a new job and she filed paperwork with the justice department which said that she intended to work for Viktor Pinchuk, who's a Ukrainian oligarch who's traditionally friendly to Russia. This is a problem because she had already been working with him. So basically, she was working as an unregistered foreign agent, just as Mike Flynn was doing.
1: I imagine that the the forms to, like, to apply for an, a position with the Trump administration, like the first question is, do you have ties to Russia? And everyone's like, check, no. And then the next question is like, but really— And then it's like, yes. Yeah, it's like you're 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 in in the DMV
0: and you like are confused about a question. You're like, do I have to answer this? And they're like, no, just put no. And everyone is like, yeah, no, just put no. And everybody, the answer is always yes. By the way, this report was posted on Jezebel's The Slot Politics blog by John Cook, the head of the Special Projects Department, and he never blogs. And just a joy to have him blog for Jezebel.
1: So our next weenie is an actual vampire, Eric Trump. I just say that because he looks, he looks like what uh, you would imagine a vampire. Because vampires don't actually look like Robert Robert Pattinson. I think they look like no. Eric he Trump. looks
0: like he's in that Edward Cullen Twilight family. Just he's like the fucked up kid <laughs> who they keep in a closet. They're like, you just don't pose with the family. <laughs> Take your own photo <laughs> later.
1: That's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's—they he's, he, let him out for some TV appearances with Sean Hannity, mm-hmm. and on those appearances, he recently said—came out and said—offered uh, his very insightful thoughts on the federal investigation into the Trump campaign's ties to Russia— and what he said was,
2: you
3: know, what, I've, I've never seen hatred like this. I mean, it, to me, they're not even people. It's it's so, so sad. I mean, morality's just gone.
1: So he called the Democratic Party not even people. That sounds like a very loving and accepting thing for the son of the president to say. Yeah. Number one, that's an insane the country.
0: quote. Number two, isn't he supposed to not be talking about politics? Isn't he like a hotel owner? They should just keep him. In the hotel closet. Keep them in the vampire's closet. And our final weenie is Us Weekly. And that's because they recently ran a story. The cover story, the latest cover of Us Weekly is why I disagree with my dad. And it's Ivanka's face looking very, like, noble. Like, her eye, in her eyes you can see she's saying, I have the best interest of the people at heart. I'm doing the best that I can. Trust me. I'm good. But basically, the article is very fluffy. It was clearly written by an Ivanka Trump unpaid intern. And it's like her saying, I disagree with my father on his environmental goals and I stand with the LGBT community, but sometimes I don't get what I want. And it's like such fluff. And it's so easy and so stupid. And it's like uh, after—so like— Basically, Us Weekly is helping continue the narrative that Ivanka Trump is fighting hard for these liberal ideals and then doesn't convince her dad, but also still has access and is also still the most influential person, but also bounces back very easily when she doesn't get what she wants. By the way, Us Weekly is now owned by the National Enquirer, the highly Trump-sympathetic publication. Our dick of the week is abortion laws in New York State. I said earlier, last year we published an interview that Gia Tolentino did called An Interview with a Woman Who Recently Had an Abortion at 32 Weeks. It was super powerful and upsetting. In that article, the person Gia interviewed went by the pseudonym Elizabeth. Elizabeth has since dropped the pseudonym, and Prachi spoke with her again and wrote this super in depth article about this New York law that still is forcing women to travel across the country for health care. Prachi, can you tell us a little bit about your article before we get into the interview?
1: Yeah. So basically, uh, the woman, Erica Christensen, um, who's so brave, she reached out to me and a year after talking to Gia and said basically like, hey, you know, there's this law out there that forced me to go out of state to have this medically necessary abortion And there's a bill in the New York state legislature that could really fix this problem. Um, It could bring our abortion law up to date with Roe versus Wade, and it would solve this problem and it would stop forcing women to go out of the state to get these necessary abortions. And basically, this bill, though, is stalling. So I looked into it and I met with her and she and her husband, Garen Marshall, hosted a meeting at the Planned Parenthood offices in Manhattan a couple of weeks ago where they gathered some friends and they educated them about this law. And I mean, the consensus in the room was just like, holy shit, New York's this progressive state and it's got these really outdated abortion laws. Basically, the abortion law in New York state was created before Roe versus Wade. So it was the most progressive in the nation For about three years, and then Roe versus Wade passed, and then suddenly it was really outdated because all it did basically was put an exception for abortion in the penal code. So, abortion used to be illegal um, in America in the earlier, like in the later part of the 1800s and into the early 1900s, as we most of us know. Um, So, New York was one of the first states to decriminalize abortion by making an exception for it in the penal code that said, okay, Abortion is justifiable in X, Y, and Z cases, and that meant really until 24 weeks, but after 24 weeks, an abortion was illegal. It is currently a felony crime in New York, and a self-induced abortion is a misdemeanor crime in New York, and New York is one of seven states that actually makes self-induced abortions uh, a crime. Um, so, and I think a, a lot of people don't know this because I didn't know that, I, you know, I also didn't know this, wrote that. um, I didn't know this and it's, it's, you know, it flies under the radar because Roe versus Wade is the constitutional law and we assume that that's what states defer to. But in actuality, I talked to doctors, I talked to Dr. Stephen Chasen, who is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Weill Cornell Medical College and a maternal fetal specialist who uh, specializes in high-risk pregnancies like Erica's. And he told me that basically hospitals are very conservative with their interpretation of the law and really stick to the state law over the federal law because there's still— room for liability, and the law does criminalize abortions, so they're not willing to incur that risk. So basically, doctors aren't allowed to provide these abortions for that are medically necessary, that are very high-risk pregnancies. You know, the women who are seeking these pregnancies after 24 weeks, many of them who find out that their fetuses have severe abnormalities. Um, This can lead to serious health complications for both the mother, um, for the fetus. It can mean that the fetus will not survive when it's born or that if it does, it's going to have a very low quality of life and will not live very long. So New York state law is currently forcing women in this position to give birth to stillborn babies, to babies that are not going to have a chance in this world.
0: Now joining us is Erica Christensen, a patient and advocate for the Reproductive Health Act. We are so grateful that you're here with us.
2: Oh, happy to be here. Thanks, guys. We're
0: encouraging all of our listeners, obviously, to read the interview you did with Gia and also to read Prachi's follow-up on it. But for people who are just entering the conversation through the podcast for the first time, could you talk about how you had to fly to Colorado to seek care?
2: So... You know, last year, we had a very complicated pregnancy. Um, Really, the whole thing was just kind of fraught with one complication after the next. And we were sort of rolling with it because while we were, you know, getting all of these bad markers, um, the baby was still growing, which our doctors explained to us was ultimately a good sign. Um, As long as you have growth, any other kind of Issues um, that come up, uh, that at least that we were dealing with, physical issues, could likely be corrected after birth. So, you know, um, we saw that there were bilateral club feet. So we were talking to a pediatric orthopedic surgeon to figure out how we could correct that after birth. Um the, the hands were clenched, which actually was a very worrisome sign, but it was something that we were just kind of watching. And, you know, I had had a lot of genetic tests, and we weren't getting any genetic markers that were catchable by the tests. So, um, you know, we were kind of getting confusing information, but a mix of bad information and then slightly hopeful. Um, then, you know, once we were reaching 30 weeks, our doctor saw that, my fluid levels were very high, but the baby had stopped growing. So what this told our doctors is that the baby was not swallowing. And that's very serious because swallowing in the womb is how, you know, a baby practices breathing. So if the baby can't swallow, the baby can't breathe, and then that's it. Um, at that point, you know, they they could be certain that they were looking at a non-viable pregnancy. Um, non-viability, by the way, we hear a lot about that, you know, it doesn't necessarily have weeks attached. Sometimes it does on a healthy baby. You might have, you know, a reasonable expectation of their ability to live on the outside based on the number of weeks that they are. For an unhealthy fetus and pregnancy, there's no such thing. They're just never, never viable. And that's, you know, a hard concept that's important, um, in this discussion because, So much is made of the weeks and really, um, you know, in our case and in so many others, they just unfortunately don't mean life, certainly. So at that point, uh, when we realized this, you know, our first question was, what does that mean? You know, if we if we carry to term, do we have a good like can we take our shot? Like maybe he'll be okay. And the doctors explained that no, um, he would not be okay. And that if we even made it to term, you know, it's possible that I could have a late term miscarriage, which, you know, comes with complications. If we made it to term, he would choke for air for a short time before basically choking to death, which, you know, in our minds, that sounded a lot like suffering to us. And so at that point, we were like, well, what's our other option? Because, we, you know, that doesn't sound like an option at all to us. And that's when our doctor and genetic counselors started to talk about termination. And when we heard that, I think my husband and I both kind of agreed uh, pretty immediately that that sounded like the more humane option at that point. And we just assumed that since, you know, our doctors were talking to us about this, that that's something that, you know, they would be able to do. And that's when, you know, we found out from our genetic counselor that, in fact, they were recommending we go to Colorado. And, you know, that's kind of when, like, the the truck hit us, I guess. Like, we just hadn't even, like, thought that it was possible that we wouldn't be able to – you know, get the help and care that we needed in New York. And, you know, she explained then that, you know, there were actually only a few states in the whole country that would take patients from out of state, non-patients from out of state. That's important. There are states that are giving this care to their patients. California is one. Um, You know, you have to be kind of approved by a board. Um, but they will let doctors give this treatment to their own patients. They will not bring patients in from out of state and treat them. And in our case, uh, right now in in the United States, that's one doctor in Colorado, two doctors in New Mexico, a doctor in Maryland who is semi-retired. That's it. So that's when we started the process of kind of getting the logistics together, um, which took two weeks, which is why, you know, we ended up traveling at 32 weeks.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the both the emotional cost and the financial cost for doing this procedure out in Colorado.
2: Absolutely, and thank you for reminding me to talk about the cost. Sometimes I don't even like remember that part, just because it it did kind of pale in comparison to the emotional cost. But it is so important because it keeps so many people from actually getting care. So it's it's so critical. Um, so in our case, when we started to talk to the clinic in Colorado. We thought at first that I'd be able to get the whole procedure there, um, which is a few day procedure. I mean, Dr. Hearn likes to do this this stuff very slow. Um, you know, he has a whole method he uses and and people will spend days with him in Colorado. And if you do that, it costs twenty five dollars to $30,000. Um, when the woman at his office told me that over the phone, my first thought was, well, then we can't do this. Like at that point, we started to kind of talk about like alternatives, like, well, is there anywhere else we can go that's cheaper, you know? And in that time, uh, Dr. Hearn had talked to my doctor in New York, also uh, my brain surgeon in New York, uh, because I had had, you know, brain surgery the year before. So these three doctors were trying to figure out the best course of care for me. And what they determined because of my pre-existing condition was that I would do half the procedure in Colorado, I would get just the shot that would stop our baby's heart and then fly back and essentially deliver a stillbirth in New York. Now, while that was difficult and, you know, obviously not ideal to have to get on a plane, you know, in the middle of of a procedure, it ended up saving us money. So in that case, I only, I say only in parentheses, had to pay $10,000 for that first part, and then insurance covered my delivery. So I guess financially, I got lucky. I mean, I certainly know women. I know more than one woman who did have to pay twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, and they just happened to have the means to do so. Um, what I also know now, which is more concerning, is that there are women who just cannot afford it at all and are forced to carry to term at great risk to their health. Um, and to their emotional health, you know, um, they want to get this care and they just can't afford it. So that was the emo- the financial cost, and then emotionally, um, yeah, I mean, you're made to feel like a criminal. I mean, that's that's it. You know, our law is literally in the penal code. So you know, when you have to leave and get on a plane and. They're telling you that if you have any trouble getting on the plane because they don't want to let you fly because you look too pregnant, to lie and say you're six months carrying twins just so that some TSA rando will let you fly to get a procedure you really need. Like that just shouldn't stand. You know, that's crazy. Also, you know, I think emotionally, I think, yes, this was heartbreaking what happened to us. We were very sad. We were depressed. We were disappointed. Um, but more so we were really, really mad. (laughs) I think that we still are, um, just because people are still doing this. I mean, I just met a woman who just had to go to Colorado at 32 weeks from Brooklyn, almost a year after I did, I just met her, you know, and when you hear that, it's just so frustrating and it just like brings it all back. You know, every time I meet someone new, it's just like reliving it all over again. Um, and it's very frustrating when, you know, that part of it can be corrected. So when you spoke with Gia last year, you decided
0: to be anonymous, but now you've kind of been thrust into this public role. Can you talk about how you decided that? Has it been a hard decision to decide to
2: come out with this story? To me, the the biggest um, hurdle was getting over just like putting my personal life in front of people, period. Like, I don't even want to tell anyone like what I had for lunch, like never mind, like my personal medical information. So that just in itself was like probably the first like major hurdle. And then I also had a conversation with myself. You know, I, I think part of the reason people were so responsive to the initial interview with Gia is because it was anonymous. You know, like, unfortunately, on the internet, often the person speaking becomes the story instead of the content of their words, especially when we're talking about women. So I think it's very easy to support an anonymous woman who's had an abortion. You know, just like it's easy to support an anonymous female presidential candidate. It's like, yeah, we'll all support these women not running. Then we have one running and no one really wants to support her. Like, I actually think that's all kind of related in my mind. Um, So I also was worried that I was like, hurting the cause by coming out and putting my face to it, just because then, you know, the antis can just kind of focus on me and tearing me down and calling me a murderer instead of like being forced to read and contemplate like the content of what I'm saying. So that was another thing I kind of had to think through. Um, But then ultimately, I guess what I came around to is, you know, I'm not ashamed of this at all. And if being anonymous gives the impression that I'm ashamed or scared in any way, then that's ultimately not okay. And the people spewing hateful nonsense have no problem putting their names on it. So at a certain point, I felt like it was just important for me to put my face and my name on this really just as like a call to the other women who I know that I'm not at all embarrassed. I'm I'm angry and, you know, I want to kind of do this for all of us, you know? Like, if 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 somebody's out there talking, then maybe they can, you know, share my article instead of, like, telling their own story just to try to get their, their family and friends to be more supportive. Um, so it was a complicated decision for sure.
1: Well, one of the things that you've done since stepping out into the public with this is you've also become an activist for it, talking, going up to the statehouse and talking to senators and um, talking with other activists. Can you tell us a little bit about what that process has been like, especially talking to senators about the issue? Like, have they been receptive to
2: your story? Yes. So that it's been such an education. I mean— Wow. Like, we have just learned so much about the way government works and, uh, you know, at least the way it works um, in New York State. And, um, you know, first of all, I think everyone listening should Google the IDC, (laughs) learn about uh, the Independent Democratic Conference. Um, That's eight Democrats who caucus with Republicans um, and in many ways kind of dictate the way our Senate works. Um, Everyone should get educated on that. I'm not a, you know, like a political expert, so I don't want to botch it. I would just say do your research and and learn about it. Um, The important part to understand is that because these eight people decide to caucus with Republicans, it means that we have a Republican majority leader and we also have Republican heads of committees Now, technically, the Democrats have a one-person majority, so we should be the the leaders and we should be the heads of committees, uh, but we aren't. Um, The problem is is that the Senate majority leader gets to decide which bills come to the floor. So whereas we would have Andrea Stewart-Cousins, a progressive black woman, she should be our leader. Instead, we have this conservative white guy, uh, Senator Flanagan, who gets to decide which bills come to the floor. Um, he has decided that he doesn't want to bring the RHA or similar you know, reproductive health bills like the CCCA for contraception to the floor. It means that even though our bills get debated in the Assembly and passed, they don't get debated and voted on in the Senate um, and then if passed, signed into law you know, by the governor. That's really important. Like if we can't even get our bills up for vote, then I'm not quite sure. I don't know what the IDC is doing. Um, You know, they have their talking points as to why they're it's helpful that they exist. Um, But, you know, if we can't even get a bill voted on, then I'm not sure that their benefits outweigh the the detriment that they're doing, you know, to us right now. Um, But Going to the the Senators has been interesting. I mean, we've gotten a real mixed bag of support. Um, the Democrats are very supportive. Um we've met a lot of them. Um, Senator Kruger is our champion. She's the best. um Senator Stuart Cousins also wonderful. she um, sponsored she sponsored versions of our bill for years before uh, Senator Kruger took over. As for Republicans, we've mostly met with their staffs. Only a couple, or I'll say a few, have been willing to meet us themselves. Um, and it was a mix. I mean, one Republican senator was really affected by our story. Um, we had a really great interaction with him. And he considers himself pro-life. And he heard our story and, like, really listened to us. And it, I think it made him think. I mean, he cried in the room with us. And then he said immediately, Don't tell anyone I cried. Um, So I can't tell you his name. Uh, But we really appreciated that interaction. I mean, he took the time with us. Um, But then we also met with the head of the health committee, um, Senator Hannon, who was very obstinate and kind of refused to listen to us and um, used terminology like partial birth abortion in the room with us, which, again, is not a thing. And you're the head of the health committee. So that's, you know, really discouraging. Um, And again, He shouldn't even be the head of the health committee. Like, they're supposed to be a Democrat in that position. So, you know, that gets very frustrating. So you've also put together letters from other women who have been affected by the law and connected
0: with other women through this process. Can you just talk a little bit about what that's been like?
2: Yes. Um, So again, after that um, interview with Gia, um, a woman reached out to me who— runs a online support group for women who have had to end wanted pregnancies um and kind of becoming that part of that group was just like so eye opening i mean it's like stepping into oz or something because it's basically just this like collection of amazing women hundreds of women from across the country who have all had to go through the craziest, most random pregnancy complications you've, you have have ever thought of that you could never come up with. And they've all had to end their pregnancies, um, you know, at different times, depending on when they found out their terrible news. It's interesting. I mean, over you know just this last year, people are more willing to talk about it. Um, Maybe not as openly as I am, but in their own way. I mean, even just coming out to the people they know. I mean, most people just tell their friends and family that they just lost their baby. You know, that's that's kind of the go-to line. Um, And more and more people now are starting to talk about the details of that. Um, And I think ultimately, that's going to be the difference here um, when we're talking about laws around these issues. We know that when people have a personal attachment to an issue, you know, it changes the way they think about it. So I think just the fact that more of us are willing to, you know, tell the people in our lives, like, what really happened, um, I hope that that ripples out. Um, But it's been, you know, really a privilege to be a part of this community. I mean, these are, like, the strongest, most ferocious women you will ever meet. I mean, really. Um, And they come from a variety of backgrounds. Many are religious Um, They have a whole different trip over this stuff. Um, So it's just been interesting to to learn about it from so many different perspectives.
1: So what can people do now? What is next?
2: I don't even know if I should say this, but, you know, to be totally honest, it is a very long shot that they're going to bring this bill up for a vote this session. There's just such low political will from the Republican side to do so. I think that we have to know who is representing us. We have to care who's representing us. I mean, I have been, like, really disappointed by the lack of engagement from people I know, never mind strangers. Like, I guess I I had this thought that I would put my name out there, my face out there, and tell people who, you know, I know care about me— what happened so that they would get fired up too. And then I thought, you know, we could do something with our numbers, you know, but what I learned, unfortunately, is that people still didn't care, even when they knew that a person that they cared about went through this, it just is really hard to get people to engage, um, I think they'll show up for a march and take pictures of themselves and put it on Instagram. I think they'll do that. I think they'll hashtag resistance, you know, on their Facebook. Um, But that's actually, like, really easy. (laughs) So um, I guess what we want to do now is try to figure out how to get people actually engaged to, like— make that extra leap to do something as small as pick up the phone and make a phone call. I mean, we haven't even been able to get people to do that. Like, we heard from Senator Serino's office um, in the Hudson Valley that she has not received one call on the RHA. We are posting about this constantly. I mean, I know I personally have dozens um, of Facebook friends personally who have connections to or live in the Hudson Valley, and none of those people picked up the phone. You know, and it's like, I don't want to just, like, call out, you know, just the, my few Facebook friends. That's that's not right. But I mean, as a greater um, as a greater constituency, we need to care because ultimately, you know, we get the government we deserve. I really believe that. I think we deserve Donald Trump right now. You know, I think half the electric didn't even vote. So like that's a real problem. Um, I don't know. I guess that's maybe ending on a sad note. I don't want to end on a sad note.
1: <laughs> well, not everything, I guess, is optimistic. Because to be clear, like, if this doesn't come to a vote in two weeks, another round of women are going to be forced to bring doomed pregnancies to term in New York state. No doubt. No doubt. Now joining us is New York State Senator Liz Kruger, who drafted the Reproductive Health Act. Senator Kruger, thank you so much for joining us.
3: I'm happy to have this time with you.
1: We think of New York
0: as kind of a bastion of liberal policies, but when it comes to abortion, that's actually not the case,
3: right? Yes, it is shocking to many people that even though New York State established a woman's right to choose three years earlier than Roe v. Wade, The antiquated way we did that in law in 1970 has never been modernized or corrected since then.
1: So what exactly does that law that we passed before uh, Roe versus Wade say, and why hasn't it been updated since?
3: We don't in New York State have a law that says a woman has the right to choose an abortion. We have sections within our criminal law that say you can't criminalize the physician for providing the abortion under certain circumstances. So the real dilemma is this is about the only health care procedure that doesn't actually get established within health law and instead is like proving a negative within penal law. That is not the place to address this issue. It has caused real harm to real people because there's various categories of abortion where doctors and hospitals in this state say, we're not sure this would meet the legal standard. We're opening ourselves up for criminal liability and we're not performing these procedures. So in New York State's existing law, after twenty weeks, you cannot really provide a abortion um, unless you c- can "quote unquote" document health and life of the mother to such an extent that most, pretty much all hospital facilities won't provide late term abortions, even when doctors believe it will be causing serious harm to the mother to continue the pregnancy. And there's no viability of a successful um, completion of pregnancy and birth. So we're actually forcing women to leave the state in search of someone who will provide a legal abortion for them when they've been told that their health And the viability of the pregnancy they carry, um, the viability is not there. And their health and life may be at risk. But they can't go into a facility anywhere in New York State and get the procedure they need. And so the fact that we have not modernized our law since 1970 is outrageous. Could
0: you explain a little bit what the Reproductive Health Act does?
3: It basically repeals sections of the criminal justice law that talks about abortion. So we remove it from the criminal justice law and we put under health law the right of health care providers to work with their patients to provide whatever reproductive health care treatments, including abortion, are called for. So it leaves to... Healthcare professionals and the mother the right to decide what is in her best interest.
0: So, I think it's shocking to me, and I'm sure to a lot of people, that this is still something that you could be sent out of New York for an abortion instead of going to New York for one. But I know that there have been various drafts of the um, Reproductive Health Act in the state legislature for almost a decade. And why has it taken so long? Why has it been so hard to pass?
3: You're right. We have had many attempts fail. And frankly, they fail because the Republican-controlled Senate refuses to bring any version of these laws to the floor for a vote in the Senate. Now, abortion in New York State was historically not a partisan issue that original law in 1970, which I'm describing as flawed, but the first of its time, passed because 12 Republicans voted with the Democrats, and yet that party has moved further to the right and further against abortion rights since that time, and the Senate Republicans have been in control almost exclusively since 1970. And so we just cannot, at this time, get the bill to the floor for a vote. I believe that if we do get the bill to the floor, there are enough people from both parties who will vote yes. Because there are enough Republicans who may not wish to put their name on the bill and may say to people, well, first you have to get it to the floor and then I'll do what I do. But I truly believe there are enough who will vote the right way if it comes to the floor. And so the push continues, but the push becomes far more important now with Donald Trump in the White House, with changes taking place in the Supreme Court, with the very real concern that we could lose the base that we've all been living under for 45 years, Roe v. Wade. And absent Roe v. Wade in the state of New York, it is incredibly unclear what your legal rights would be, which is why it is now so critical that every state be passing laws not unlike the Reproductive Health Act. And by the way, other states are doing that as we speak. Delaware just passed theirs, I think, two days ago.
0: As we think about it, usually abortion is kind of a partisan issue. Democrats are pro-choice. Republicans are pro-life. But you set up the New York State Bipartisan Pro-Choice Legislative Caucus. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
3: Sure. Um, And in 2010, I woke up after the 2009 election cycle and watched what had been going on and the messaging that was going going on around the country, and I said— They're going to give up the fight at the federal level to attack abortion. And they're going to focus on state capitals, they being the opponents. And they're going to work the state capitals until they build enough momentum to shift back to DC. I decided we needed a pro-choice reproductive caucus of the state legislature. It should be men and women. There was no reason not to believe that I couldn't get Republicans and Democrats um, to sign up for this. And that what we were going to do was push the agenda of pro-choice rights in New York State, be a good defense for any attack on choice bills that might try to move through the state legislature, educate legislators about why these issues mattered so much. Because for some, even for many younger legislators, this fight was never part of their lives. It was something in history, and they didn't necessarily understand all the sometimes complex and nuanced issues. So we've, you know, we're doing the right job on defense, but we still cannot get This fundamental bill passed to protect ourselves, particularly in the era of Trump and the risk of Roe v. Wade being, if not overturned, superseded by other bad decisions in the Supreme Court. What kinds of conversations do you have
1: with legislators in the caucus? Can you tell us some of the questions that they have and how you and how those conversations
3: go? Sure. I think there is a lot of misinformation out there about the issue of late term abortion, because, in fact, the other side purposely puts out false information constantly. So it's really important to sit down and be able to just have a one on one conversation with a legislator and explain what you're talking about when you mean late-term abortion and that you are not discussing somebody wakes up after eight months of pregnancy and says, damn, I just don't think it's convenient for me. Maybe I'll just go get an abortion. Or that there are not live births in abortion taking place. There are not, you know, these horrible stories that come out about, you know, abortion providers selling off the parts from aborted fetuses. You know, they just, there's this constant, constant drumbeat of false information that goes out there. And legislators actually want a a safe place where they can say, what does that mean? What's going on with that? I've had legislators say to me, because in New York State, we do have a a standard we've had for decades that a teenager has the right to get an abortion without parental notification. And I'll have legislators say, I don't understand, if it was my daughter, I would wanna know, I would want to be there with her, I would wanna be part of the discussion. And they'll say, so I'm concerned about parental notification. And I will quietly talk to them about that in their family, that's probably true, and they probably have raised teenagers who feel like they can come to their parents to talk about anything, but that, in fact, that's not the story in too many families. It's not the story in families where a teenage girl believes that she will be thrown out of the family if she tells them she's been having sex and got pregnant accidentally. It's not the story in a family where she's been raped and doesn't feel she can come forward and tell her family that she's been raped and is pregnant. It isn't the story when this young woman might have been victim of incest from a family member and isn't prepared or simply couldn't possibly bring to the parents the discussion because it may have been the father who raped her. And I explained that these are statistical facts and that providers can actually each tell confidential stories of these kinds of experiences. And you see like a light bulb go off in legislators' heads oh, I never thought all those things. But of course, those are true stories. Of course, those kinds of things unfortunately happen in our society all the time. Now it makes total sense to me what we have to make sure everybody has the right to access, even if they're not 18 years old, and even if they can't get any parental approval. And so that's just one type of example of a discussion I've had more than a few times with other legislators.
1: So you also mentioned that what's more likely—the more likely scenario is not that Roe versus Wade will get overturned, but that uh, state laws could end up superseding Roe versus Wade. How is that possible?
3: Well, there are at least— I think the last time I heard a count, it was like 125, and I'm sure it's more now, state laws that have been passed in the last six years or so that are clearly violations of Roe v. Wade. And yet they have to then play out through the courts before they're overturned. And you know eventually they may move to the Supreme Court, any number of them. And at the time they move to the Supreme Court, The question is, because of the makeup of the court at X date as opposed to in 1973, will the judges of the current Supreme Court uphold these bad, dangerous state laws that actually do violate Roe v. Wade?
0: So since the election in general, Democrats across the country have been kind of playing defense as it feels like civil rights achievements that we thought were locks or that we thought had really changed history are being rolled back by the Trump administration. But you are doing the opposite. You're not
3: playing defense. Can you talk about that? Again, you end up having to do some of both. But I have been, in my opinion, and again, when I started the caucus in 2010, was looking forward what are worst case scenarios and what can we do to protect ourselves from them by playing offense. Even though we're still not there in New York, I was just reading a report that so far in 2017, and we're only in June, 118 proactive abortion right bills have been introduced in 33 out of 50 states. So I do think after the Six years of going the wrong direction, state capitals and legislators in state capitals are waking up and saying what I've been saying. We have to be the ones who are proactive. We have to be far more aggressive of pushing back, using the powers we have at the state level to protect our citizens.
1: Well, is there there are only I think two more weeks left in the this- Senate session to vote on this. Is there anything that listeners can do to help
3: bring the RHA to a vote? They can push on John Flanagan. They can reach out to their senators. If they know their senator supports the bill, they can reinforce to them how important it is to them that they continue to be strong and supportive and how much they appreciate their being on the right side of the issue. If their senator refuses to answer the question about whether or not they would support this bill, urge them to allow the bill to come to the floor anyway, urge them to allow this bill to have a vote, which means that they demand of their leader, John Flanagan, it comes to the floor for a vote. And then once we get that, then the question will be up on how much pressure will they receive from their own constituents at home on whether or not they vote yes or no on the bill. Again, I'm convinced that if this bill comes for a vote, there will be far more Republicans who feel they must vote yes rather than face the question, how could you not vote yes, than anyone is willing to admit today. And I don't need them to come out today and say, of course, I'm going to vote for it. I would like that, but we don't need that. We need them to support letting the bill come for a vote.
1: Senator Kruger, thank you so much uh, for joining us and for giving us a little bit of optimism, too.
3: (laughs) You know, every day you have to get up and view the world as a glass half full or a world not quite done yet. Um, And to be honest, I fundamentally believe that if the good guys stop showing up and continuing the fight guarantee the bad guys will show up and win so we all have to do this every day
0: i personally view the world as like an ocean half empty but i really appreciate your perspective
3: thank you for having me
0: Time for how to handle the dicks, where we talk about what we're doing, even though we know that, like, our own state legislature is half so evil—not evil, just like beholden to things that I think are evil. Pr- 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 <laughs> 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 uh she's just like
3: <laughs> I just rolled
0: my eyes and like, and,
1: like <laughs> nodded. Yeah. Um, how are you handling the dicks? Well. As everyone now knows. Everybody I, knows. Everybody, it. the whole world. This is big news. Yeah. Uh, I was on vacation for 10 days in Greece. And that is that is what I did to handle the dicks. And, uh, you know, that's not like a cheap way to do it. But it was incredible. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I recommend it to anyone who can afford to take a vacation, if that's something that is within your means. You don't have to go to Greece. You don't have to go to Greece. Just go to somewhere where you don't have to, you know, you might not have an internet connection for like five days on end and you can't check Twitter because literally, like the three times I checked Twitter, I was like, Oh, we just pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Great. (laughs) You missed a lot of stuff. (laughs) Oh, okay. He said this about Kathy Griffin. Oh, like literally every time I open the internet something jumped out, like, yeah. something huge. Or just and, don't open the internet. And then I Like, just,
0: can't afford to go to Greece? Don't open the internet. It's true. Another option. That's
1: another, <laughs> another way you could take a vacation in your head. Um, yeah, so that was lovely. And now I'm only—I'm not really jet-lagged, but I've been, like, I've been getting up a little bit earlier. So, like, this morning I had a good workout, nice. a good breakfast, and I'm back in my routine. you And I feel, like, ready— to get back in, do some reporting. That's exactly what a vacation is supposed to do. It's never done that
0: for me before.
1: I don't think it's ever done that. <laughs> I'm for always me before like tired and like, <laughs> why did I do this? <laughs> yeah, no, I feel great. And although uh, I, I do miss Greece,
0: my how to handle, inspired by Prachi, I bought a plane ticket to Italy, and That's so in two exciting. months I'm going to Italy, which I haven't like done a big vac. I feel like since I've in the past couple of years, I can, I've can i never, like, felt enough <laughs> job security to take, like, a long vacation. So I've gone to the beach for, like, a couple days. but I've, So now I've been to the beach so many times. And I'm not going to the beach anymore. Fuck the beach. I mean, I like it. But okay. Like, I'm going somewhere else. I like the beach, too. <laughs> no, no shade to the beach. No. It's, like, good. The beach, you're good. You don't need this from us.
1: I mean, the beaches aren't going to exist much longer. I know. I'm These, also going to so, Venice. I so work- just go. Uh, In Italy,
0: (laughs) I'm insisting that we go to Venice even though it's, like, kind of out of the way just because – and, like, maybe not that – like, maybe very touristy. But it's going to be gone in, like, 50 years. I just want to see Venice while it still exists until the sea swallows it. You know
1: what's ironic, though, is, like, by going to all these places that are disappearing because of us exiting the Paris Climate Agreement, we are – Probably even increasing the chance, of, like that. We're like further accelerating. Why? Their... Because of planes? Yeah, because of just like the pollution and the like. I, I don't, don't know, think this... me taking the first <laughs> vacation I've taken <laughs> in Doing five you years are is accelerating <laughs>
0: carbon is accelerating carbon
1: pollution. But I know what you're saying. I don't even know if that's true. I was just I was just I saying don't... that. Mm, yeah, that was not a journalistic comment. Please do not take that out of context, Please, anybody. Environmental organizations.
0: Anyway. I have been taking 15 minutes of Duolingo Italian every day to learn how to speak Italian. Wow. Because I spoke Spanish growing up in classes, and then I was a French major.
1: We know Joanna. We know you know French. No, no.
0: No, no, no. (laughs) This is not the point. The point is that I've forgotten all of those languages, but I think because I spoke those once, I could maybe learn Italian more quick. Yeah. Because Romance.
1: Because romance. The
0: romance languages.
1: But also because romance. (laughs) But also
0: because of romance. Here's what I've learned so far. (laughs) Il ragazzo mangi la mela. What is that? What does that mean? The boy eats the apple.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm so proud of you. You're going to learn so much.
0: If that's what I've learned so far, I think I could only go up. Thank you so much for listening to Big Time Dicks, and thank you so much to our guests, Erica Christensen and Senator Liz Krueger. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Dries. Mondina Mofiti is our executive director of audio. On this episode, we featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader, and it was mixed by Brad Fisher. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other people can find the show. You can also find us on Panoply, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Got a big time dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to dicks at jezebel.com or tweet at jezebel using the hashtag BigTimeDicks. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then.